welcome back to the Nautic Ed podcast. I'm your humble host, Captain Kev, along with Grant, the founder of Nautic Ed. And boy, do we have a special show for you today. Uh, our guest today is a true legend in the sport of sailing. Um, she is an a inspirational person that not only um, puts her skills to work on the water and has been highly competitive at the top level of the sport, but then she also takes that energy and she helps other people get involved. She was the first woman to manage a America's Cup sailing team. She's raced four America's Cup and two Whitbread races, including the maiden, the very first entry into the Whitbread uh, for an all-women's team, and they finished, and they finished well. Um, she's a former president of the Women's Sports Foundation, and she served on the board of U.S. Sailing and advises lots of public organizations. Uh, without further ado, Grant, let me introduce Dawn Riley. Dawn, welcome to the show. Hello. Thanks for having me. And it is great to have you here. Um, you are somebody who has been um, one of the, like we said at the beginning, a true pioneer in this sport, this industry. You've inspired a lot of people. And if it's okay with you, can I start with something that's become kind of famous? Um, I'd like to talk about 1989, 1990, uh, the Maiden, uh, the Whitbread okay. race. And, you know, that was the first all female entry into um, an around the world race. Is that right? Yes, that's true, for sure. There were 12 women on nine different countries on a 58-foot aluminum boat racing around the world when uh, most people, including the media, thought that we would maybe make it to the end of English of the English Channel. You know, and, and I, I've watched the documentary um, called Maiden, and it was... Uh, it blew me away. I've got a young daughter. She watched it with me, and it, it helped you know, instill even more fire into her belly for sailing. And, you know, that's really, you know, what your story does for people, I think. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that voyage on Maiden? Um, you know, what was it like taking that very first starting gun? Okay, so the first thing is the film made in the documentary is quite accurate. There's a few things that are kind of uh, a little bit Hollywoodized, but overall it's a really good uh, portrayal of what was going on uh, the start the very first start was probably when it all hit me I distinctly remember standing down below and Tracy coming down and saying are you okay and I'm like can we just freaking go because there was so much hoopla there were so many families not mine because I was American so mine were back home but you know families and media and press and it hit me I'm a watch captain in charge of this boat and we're gonna go sail around the world. Wonder how big it is. And once we got going and sailing, it was awesome. Oh, I can only imagine that build up, you know, and that, that I, I love that fact that you're just like, come on, let's just do this, let's do it. Come on, let's go. <laughs> yep. <laughs> You know, and you didn't just race in one Whitbread. Um, and folks, if you're not familiar with that name, it's now called the Volvo Ocean Race. Um, but uh, Dawn raced in two, not just one. What made you do it again? Uh, guilt and responsibility. So the first time we did it, we really were just uh, 12 different women that uh, we didn't really know each other before. And we wanted to race around the world in what was the Whitbread. And there were very, very, very few opportunities. So Tracy said, well, I'm just going to do it with a group of all women. And we absolutely believe that the only reason that women weren't allowed on the other boats was because the guys thought it wasn't possible. So our logic was, 
we'll do it with no guys, all women, and then we'll prove our point, and then we'll integrate into the other teams. Now, 30 years later, we're still fighting for that battle. Uh, but the second race, so we had that idea that this was going to be done, check, got the T-shirt, move on, let's go sail with boys. And um, I was doing, getting ready for America's Cup, the second America's Cup at that point. And there had been a team that was led by somebody who wasn't qualified, but she had managed to get the boat to Clinta de Les, Uruguay. And then the sponsors called and they said, we have a team of women that will be in Uruguay, have to go to the embassy to be flown out because they have no money they're going to ruin all of the progress you did for women with the last race. But if you agree to come down, we'll sponsor it and we've got the money and we'll hire you and you bring your other people and you can save women kind in offshore racing. So it's a whole lot of guilt. And I made the decision in about an hour and headed to Punta. You came in and swooped in and saved the day. You, you captained that boat, right? I did, and I don't know what, yes, we did save the day, I guess. Uh, that was a challenging race because at least half of a whip red or around the world race, probably even more, is preparation. It's probably more like 75% is preparation. Once you leave the dock, uh, especially back then when we were still developing boats, you, you were just getting the boat around and racing, but there's two different steps. And for this one, when I came in without that preparation time, we broke parts of the rudder twice and then lost the whole rudder the last time. Uh, we had sails that were horrible in the beginning. So it really was a, a you know rescue mission. And the thing that was cool is that the book that I wrote about it, Taking the Helm, we had to retype it for uh, publishing in self-publishing because Little Brown had lost the files. And when I was retyping it, I realized when we had the boat in one piece, the rudder attached and good sails, we were on the podium. But because of all the other struggle, I had misremembered and thought that we absolutely sucked. That wasn't the case. It was just a different type of race. Yeah, I mean, and that's that, that's kind of the key to you know any kind of sailing, especially racing, is you know, keeping things in good order. And when things are running well, uh, you can do well as long as you've got a good team, a good boat and a good leader. Yep, and it's always about mitigating risk. You're, you're, everything you do in sailing is, um, is somewhat risky, but if you're prepared and you're thinking through and you're always on top of it, it's amazing how much better you can do when you keep the crew attached to the boat. And hey, Dawn, I might just jump in, it's Grant. Um, so, you know, everybody sailing around the world, they say that you've got to have two of everything on your boat. You've got to have a massive amount of redundancy and you've got to have people that can can uh, fix those things and all that kind of stuff. So tell us some stories about uh, how that went down and, you know, you've got something breaks and you all of a sudden you've got a second one so you can slap that in and, and carry on going. Yeah, back when we were doing it, you didn't necessarily have two of everything. You had plans and you had the ability to fix things. So. The second race I did was the last race where I think that they had sewing machines on board so we could fix our sails. On Heineken, uh, the second one around, we ran out of thread for the sewing machine because we had so many sails that broke on that second leg. And (laughs) we tried to, or we did, 
sew the head of a spinnaker back on using dental floss, <laughs> and it looked beautiful for about two minutes, and then it let rip again. So, but at least we were trying, you know. Um, there's random things that you have to be creative and self-sufficient. Uh, earlier, before we got on the call, we were talking about how there was cigarette smoking on board the boat. I did not like that at all, as being American and being anti-smoking. But on Maiden, we had a problem after the near sinking, and we had bad fuel in the cooking gas, and the regulator had to keep getting cleaned up. We literally couldn't boil water and I was getting so frustrated and I looked around and saw something else that I was frustrated with which was a carton of cigarettes and I realized that if I took the filter out of the end of the cigarette and stuck it in the regulator it provided enough of a filter that we could use the cooking gas no problem so you got to be creative oh my god wow the first time cigarettes have ever saved a life Exactly, or at least, <laughs> at least fed us. <laughs> right. Killed millions and saved a few, yeah. <laughs> Who would imagine? You know, um, mm-hmm. you know, and those are the kind of the exciting moments, you know, where you're frustrated and you fix something or something goes a little awry and, you know, you've got to figure out how to do it. But then there's those other moments, you know, and, and I've had mine. You know, where you're on board, it's nighttime, you can see the stars reflecting off the ocean. It's almost like the sky goes on forever. Um, you know, were those spiritual moments there too, even though you were racing? You know what? My mom's going to kill me. I'm not that spiritual, but there were absolutely take your breath away gorgeous moments. And it could be uh, when it's warm and it's beautiful and the sun is coming up in the doldrums and it's just, you know, the, the water's just undulating and looking oily. Or it could be in the Southern Ocean. There's one time I remember specifically Jenny Mundy and I uh, did a sail change and it was freezing, freezing cold. So by the time you're done with the sail change, you're hot. And we just unzipped our jackets a little bit and both lay on the foredeck and looked up at the stars and you couldn't tell the horizon uh, because it was pitch black except for stars out and they just twinkled everywhere and then you had some phosphorescence. It was in- incredible. It's like floating in the middle of the Southern Ocean. And then we got cold and then we went back and started trimming the steering again, but it was amazing. You know, so, so for you, when you're out there on the water um, and, you, and you're doing it for yourself, right? You're racing for yourself and your team. You're out there, uh, maybe you're exploring or taking a little trip on your own just for fun. But, you know, what drives you to get out there? Is it the, the thrill of the boat? Is it the experience of being on the water? I mean, I think I know the answer, but I'd love to hear, hear what you have to say. You know what? It's just part of me, it's, especially at this age. And I've gotten, maybe it was a little while ago. I'm 55. And it's just what I do. But I, and I keep looking back, you know, what was that in a 13-year-old girl that said, identified that I'm going to be a sailor for I want to be a professional sailor I don't know it's a combination of the the lifestyle the friends you make the exploration the challenging yourself the fact that you are never bored that's one of the biggest questions I get from non-sailors they're like you sailed around the world took nine months weren't you bored never ever ever there's always something to do you can always make the boat go you know a hundred but not faster you can always try to figure out why the, you know, what's going to break next. Uh, 
You can try to redesign the traveler system in your head. You can tell a story from 15 years ago. You can plan what you're going to eat when you get to shore, which is usually something involving a vegetable because freeze-dried food sucks. I mean, there's always something to do. You know, and, and you took that experience and you went to the highest level of the sport to America's Cup. And, you know, we talked in the pre-show a little bit about a very particular race uh, with America Cubed and you were sailing against Dennis Connor and Stars and Stripes. And I can remember watching this race on TV. I remember watching you guys ahead at the mark going, here they go, here they go, they're gonna do it. And, and then things changed and it was a heartbreaker. But just to compete at that level, and you've gone on to compete in four America's Cup races. Um, but I want to talk about that race a little bit because that race is what made me realize, wow, women are incredible sailors. I had no idea. And I was rooting for the women's team. I wanted America's Cube to win that so bad. Um, tell us a little bit about that race. I, we'd love to hear. Well, you and a lot of America. That was an amazing time in history for women uh, in in the sport, in all sports. There was the Olympics in Atlanta that was like the, the year of the women. There was the Silver Bullets baseball team. There was America's Cup, the women's team. And remember, that was my second one. So I was on the team in 92 when we did win uh, the America's Cup. So this was my second go round. And to do it with an all-women's team was obviously pretty impactful. And we 1,000% were there to win. It wasn't like Maiden where we were going to prove that we could do it and we ended up second. This one is we were going for the win. And I believe that every single second and of every race until this race. And that was when we were on the verge of eliminating Dennis Conner for the second time. And we were at the top mark, the last top mark, 2.3 miles downwind, I believe. And we had to, uh, we had been knocked. So we rounded, we were pointing, you know, not very far off the finish line, but looking for any breath of wind. I was standing on the gooseneck looking for wind. I called back to Dave Dellenbach who was our tactician, because we did have one person on board that was a male, because that's what we were lacking, was just the depth of experience, not the muscle, the strength, the will, all, uh, the, you know, all of that. And I said, Dave, the only wind I see is over by Point Loma if we jibe. The navigator said, no, we're too close to the finish lay line. You know, we need to go down here before we can jibe later. Um, and Dennis Connor, six and a half minutes later, rounded jive because you know match race you go the other way we covered very slowly they got a sea breeze building off of point loma off the land jived back at us on port and we um tried to cover them to come into the finish and they were able to luff us and sneak over the finish line a uh, quarter, half a boat length ahead of us. And that was the end of our campaign. And I'm doing this while I'm talking with my hands and I can visualize every breath where the spectator boats were, what Point Loma looked like with the the haze of a, of a building little bit of a breeze. I remember every single moment of it. 
sailing really does absorb all your senses. Yeah, I mean, it's <laughs> absolutely. Well, and there it's, you go. There's the other, the classic, the classic, classic story of of uh, you know covering and going for the yep. wind and you know everything that you're supposed to do and one tiny mistake. Um, yep. Oh, sickening. Yeah, that race will forever stick in my memory. Um, and that's what really put women in sailing on the map for me. And even mm-hmm. as, you know, after my daughter was born, I showed her some of the old videos of America Cubed. And you know, before her very first sail with me, I said, I want you to see you know, what this is about. I want you to see you know, women doing it as good as men because one day you're going to replace me. That's part of being a leader, right? Is teaching people how to do what you do. You know, mm-hmm. and, and it was an inspiration to her. It's uh, you guys have been an inspiration to me, and you've carried that inspiration forward uh, through America True and um, Oak Cliff Sailing Club. Um, these are places that you have really set anchor. Um, they're two separate things, of course. Um, so let's talk about America True first. Mm-hmm. Well, America True was the third campaign for the America's Cup. And my whole goal, as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, was to sail mixed, mixed gender, co-ed. Um, I, ideally, I want to have racial diversity and gender diversity throughout our sport. And it, it just boggles my mind that it's not happened yet. I have a mission and stand by because if, if I want to have something to happen, it's going to happen. Well, Just Dawn, can we? Uh, I want to. I want to. I want to uh, be part of that as well. So let us know what we can do to uh, help that Excellent. out. Excellent. Excellent. We have the the sooner Amistad coming in tomorrow. We're doing a Black Lives Matter um, vigil and flag raising on the boat. And I've been talking to Whoopi Goldberg, and I'm just putting it out there. It's going to happen. Uh, but back to America True. I wanted to do a, a mixed team, and I also wanted to win the America's Cup, and I knew that I was going to do that within um, uh, a week of the end of the women's team. And I started to put together my business plan and my vision and my team. And originally, we wanted to be the diverse team. We ended up having some diversity, but not enough to be authentic, you know, to call ourselves that. So. We just were the co-ed team, America True, which is truly representative of America. And all we did on that team is we had our key com- key people and we said, there's one thing that you must do. You must do your very best to judge every applicant, every sailor, every design team member, every shore team member as gender neutral as possible. And you have to ask yourself, did I do that before you make a hiring decision? And we ended up with 25% women uh, throughout the, the whole team from in every department. But the coolest thing we did is that was when uh, part of this struggling for diversity, that was when yacht clubs in particular and many sailing clubs were very much closed to the public. You had to have a blue blazer. Often you were you literally by their bylaws had to be white, which is just insane to say this, um, that that was a reality. And we blew the doors off of that because we had something called True Youth. So we had programs where we would go into different yacht clubs and we would say, you find people in the communities that are underserved who have never been to your club before, we'll come in, we'll do 
uh, speech and entertainment for your members. And then we're all going sailing or boating or kayaking or paddle boarding. Well, that, that didn't exist back then. But um, we're, we're all going to go out on the water. And we had 28 clubs that uh, started programs from that that are now open to the public. So that was a huge step forward. Of course, we still have to keep moving on that. Well, I was going to say your big win was because America Drew took out Dennis Conner in Stars and Stripes, but, you know, <laughs> that's even a bigger win. I, I mean, honestly, it is. It's, it's what you do for the overall. But we did take down Dennis Conner, and we went. Uh, we were the team with the smallest budget, um, but we used that strength of different perspectives and people working hard for a goal that was bigger than just the America's Cup. So the, while we help True Youth and blow the doors open for a little more uh, gender and racial diversity, they helped us by keeping our focus. And we knew that we were racing for something bigger than just a sailboat race. And we used every penny we had as if it was our own, which is something that I teach here at Oakland Sailing in Oyster Bay, uh, New York. And we were able to have the smallest budget and eliminate the teams like the New York Yacht Club, uh, Team Dennis Connor. Um, and went into the finals with a day. We didn't have to race the last day, which was crazy to think that that was going to happen. Uh, and then, unfortunately, we took the luxury of that extra, turned out to be two days because of a lay day, to make a modification to our boat, which was a fail. So we ended up uh, coming out in fifth uh, of the six boat semifinals. But still, it was an amazing team. I mean, that, that's something that is, um, you know, kind of a nature to the sport, right? You, you, you make tweaks here and there, and you're just not quite sure what's going to work, even though, you know, what we say, sail, sailors don't make plans. We just have good intentions. Well, and, and I'm, jump, yeah. I'm jumping um, in as well because, uh, you know, I, I can kind of relate. Uh, you know, I'm a Kiwi, and, um, mm-hmm. you know, New Zealand's got uh, 4 million people. <laughs> and... Uh, you know, we come out on top, and it's for, for, for New Zealand uh, to actually win the America's Cup the number of times that it's done is just being so cool to watch. I can kind of relate a little bit to being the underdog um, and watch the surprise on people's faces. Like, how? How can those guys do that? You know, um, and, yep. and so this whole talk, like, gets me going um, a little bit, and, and I'm got a little... Thanks goosebumps here and there and, and and i'm you know i'm very proud of what we've been able to do um and and just innovations like you know putting bicycle <laughs> pedals on um on the boat uh, to to pump up the hydraulics and oh my god you know um and it's going to well, be even s- more than that the so i mean i we i lived in new zealand for almost 10 years was engaged to a kiwi for a while loved the country loved the people many 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 friends there um, but you're exactly right. The innovation that we used and the, the doing it bare bones and creative. Uh, we had John Cutler, who was a Kiwi as our helmsman. Kelvin Harrop was our tactician. Leslie Egnott was on the team as our backup navigator, ended up being our final navigator. Brad Webb, who is now married to an American and then went on to Oracle. We had like, you know, we had a, quite a big contingent of Kiwis on our team. And that led part of the decision making. Grant Simmer was also uh, on our team. Uh, but uh, the Kiwi ingenuity and the just make it happen 
is what I used as an example in the fourth America's Cup with the French. We had a saying that we would have this conflict and the Kiwis are like, let's just get it done, make it look good enough, the function is most important. And the French were absolutely on the other side and it was, it has to be perfect and it must be beautiful and they would go on and on. So we literally used that as code. We're like, just fucking do it, Kiwi. Oops, I'm not supposed to say that word. Um, okay. Or we'd say, okay, this project you can do French. That became part of our vernacular oh, wow. with the with Ariba, the French team. But uh, yeah, I wish we could all be in New Zealand right now. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I grew up on a sheep farm, right? So that is exactly what we would do: is to you know make it happen, weld it up, make it stronger. She'll be right. Get going. Uh, She'll be right. Yeah, exactly. And I, I believe that's the, the biggest innovation, actually, on the Kiwis winning in, the, um, in Bermuda was that they were doing, they had to come up with a way to less money and quicker time frame. And time is always the thing that wins. And brains and time efficiency is what wins the America's Cup more than money. And then they started using their foils to try to do it quick rather than having the CNC machine mill carbon. They started making them out of steel and then found out that the, uh, that, that, was, that was the winner uh, in terms of less drag and uh, stronger and less flex. So oh, wow. there's little things like that that was almost an accident, but it was just being smart and being open to doing things differently. You know, and, and, you know, part of me resents the Kiwis for taking the trophy, you know, being <laughs> <Hey>. American. <laughs> but the, the other part of me agrees with Grant completely because they were the underdogs. You know, I mean, they, frankly, they didn't have the backing. They didn't have all the money. And they showed that sailing isn't about money. It's about fortitude. It's about, yep. you know, putting yourself out there, being creative, um, you know, trying things, you know, not necessarily conforming. And I think that's something that I hear from you throughout the entire talk we've had is this idea of nonconformism to the to the standard that that was there. I mean, you blew the standard up and you created a better standard. And today, America True still continues forward with its foundation work, right? Yes, um, we are currently it's still going and that's finished in 2000. That's crazy. So we're still in existence and we are literally an incubator or hospital, we call it, for startup community sailing programs. So a small program that's starting somewhere new, that's trying to make a difference. We are there to help with advice, not really with a lot of money. We can be the fiscal agent um, or what always often happens with new startups of business or foundations or sailing programs is that three to five years in, the founders are exhausted and they need a kickstart. And that's where we will help place uh, a person to help them uh, run it, reorganize it, do a consulting, you know, free consulting job. That's actually how I got to Oak Cliff and Oyster Bay is I was asked to come in as part of the America True Foundation to look at uh, a pretty good community sailing program, the Waterfront Center, that had just had like, they needed to be rebooted. And I did that project for free because of the, we were working for the foundation and then all of a sudden ended up with uh, a place for 10 years, which is talk about, you know, blowing, <laughs> blowing the norm up right, right now, today, technically we have a hurricane coming in, but whatever, it's only 30 knots. Um, and we have 
six male just 24s getting ready to do a double-handed offshore race. Now anybody, I assume most people listening are sailors, but anybody that knows Mel just 24 thought we were insane last year when I came back from the world sailing meetings. I'm like, we're gonna go double-handed in the Mel just 24s. And that included every single person on my team here. They looked at me like I had been smoking something. But we took that attitude, the same, you know, Kiwi attitude, the American Cherry attitude, and we said, no, 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 no. How can we do this? How are we going to do this? So we did things like uh, talk to Melgis and Andy Burdick gave us uh, Melgis 20 spinnakers so that you don't have to go out of the cockpit and one person could take it down by themselves. We worked with North Sales and Chemo Worthington and we designed and then built our own reefable Dacron low roach uh, mainsail. We used uh, systems to be able to reef the mains without putting any holes in the boat. We have the only holes that we put in the boat was for one safety pad eye and for the autopilot, which is used strictly to hold the course. It's just a straight old uh, Raymarine, you know, $400 part to minimize the electronics. And then then we said, well, if we're doing all this cool stuff, we have to figure out how to broadcast it. So we talked to KVH and they gave us a satellite dome. We have a, a mothership that's there as a media boat that's following along. We have live streaming 24 hour coverage with audio um, with a media tower that's on the back that's built out of um, electrical conduit that we just spray painted black so it looks carbon. I mean, and it's so exciting. and. Everybody said, oh, that is cute. You did the first test event for the Olympics. Now we're going to go sail in the real boat. Pretty much. Not so much has happened mm-hmm. until we're doing the second one. <laughs> yep. That's that. That's that's the Kiwi in you, right? After 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my and God. You so went, much fun. You went all in. I mean, from media boats to redesigning the sails to making it happen. And, and don't you have the biggest fleet of those of those boats? Well, no, this is just Melgis 24. These are little sport boats. Right. Uh, we have the biggest fleet of Match 40s, which are That's essentially it. the training boat, the shape of the IACC boats that we sailed in 92 through 2007. So, And we use those for, those we would not send offshore because, no. <laughs> They're very, very fast in flat water and in waves, but you feel like you're in the Southern Ocean when you go out in Long Island Sound. They're designed for match racing, closed course. Uh, they're also very good for fleet racing because you have enough room on them to uh, coach. And they can sail in, I don't know, zero knots of wind. They can still move generally. And we've sailed them in 30 knots. And those do have reefable mains just so that we can, if we have to, keep the event going. Now, the Melgis 24 is like sending, what, what boat did you guys say? A topaz? Yeah. To go do the trans, to go do the trans pack. That's right. Oh, right. Think about that. <laughs> <laughs> you wouldn't want to do that. Yeah. <laughs> and just so our, our listeners are clear, we're talking about the uh, uh, Oak Cliff sailing right now. And, uh, you know, out of Oak Cliff sailing, you know, they're able to do these sorts of things and create these unique programs. And Don has kind of been at the helm of making those things happen. And, you know, can you tell us what Oak Cliff is really all about? Because we talked about America True real quick, but before we go, I wanted to make sure people understand what, what the purpose of Oak Cliff really is. 
Right. So it's evolved and it continues to evolve. But really what it is, is we saw the need when I was, uh, I was still on the board of U.S. Sailing. We had America True, which really established the community sailing model. We started to see the explosion of the formalization of Yacht Club's junior sailing programs with the Opties and the 420s and, and all of that coaching. And there was college sailing, but we realized there was a huge gap developing between when you're 12 to 20 and, or you've come from outside and learned about sailing, but you're tired of sailing a sonar around in a circle on a small lake, and you wanna make this your life and your passion and your profession. And so we developed Oakcliff is basically the university slash grad school for those, those programs and for those individuals. We thrive on people who know how to sail, are passionate about sailing, so passionate that they have no idea what they actually want to do. So if somebody that comes says, I want to race around the world, I want to do the World Match Racing Tour, I want to do the America's Cup, I want to own a business, I want to be a sail maker, um, and I, oh, maybe I want to be a chef. We got you. Because we have training in offshore in match racing, in high performance for the Olympics. Um, we're doing the bulk of the training with U.S. sailing for the Olympic stuff, especially this year in COVID. I think it might be the only training camps uh, that are happening for the U.S. sailing team and uh, the Olympic Development Program. Uh, we have, I'm sitting right now in our clubhouse, which we've turned into a physical fitness uh, gym with grinding machines and weights and what have you. Uh, so we have the physical side, all the different sailing sides, and then there's two other components. One is how to fix everything that you could possibly break. So we have a sail loft, a machine shop, composite, storeroom, rigging, uh, and boatyards and cranes. We also do the business side. So how do you do your marketing? All of that stuff that we talked about for the double-handed offshore was developed in-house between our race program director and our PR person. And now we're teaching other people how to use uh, Spotify to link signals to be able to have live streaming, how to use WowZ to get it up to our different channels. So we have, it's an amazing universe, Disneyland of the sport of sailing. And we are here and open to anybody who has passion and wants to get better. We have over a hundred boats uh, on site. And next year, post COVID, we will have a Midwest offshore program doing the Mackinaws and probably Trans-Superior and then going out through the St. Lawrence. We will have an on-site mat tracing uh, program, which we've always had, but it will be summer long. We'll have the Olympic high performance with the 49ers, NACRAs, FX, um, 470s. We still have the fins, even though those are out after this next Olympics. Uh, we're looking at adding tight foiling and boards and um, the high performance and, and then all of the other stuff that goes along with that. It's kind of insane when I say it. This year, I just want to point out, this year we were early on. We're in New York. It's where COVID started the epicenter. We've locked down immediately and we've had, I don't, this is possibly my biggest feat ever. I've been able to keep our entire staff of 20 some year olds in the bubble, not going out and doing silly things, working hard, focused and committed to the overall team of Oak Cliff. 
so nobody gets to come into our bubble and stay in our dormitories and our bunkhouse and work with us unless they've quarantined and been tested negative. So the NBA, yeah, those people covered up, copied up. You have done a lot of good for the industry just by being who you are and following your own passion. I mean, you've created a, um, a legendary story, a story that very few in this world are ever going to replicate. And it's because you followed your passion and you've let that passion become something more so it can pollinate the next generation. It can encourage the next groups to set up areas where they can come and actually learn and, you know, follow their passions like you did. And, you know, with that, I just like to say, Don, thank you for joining us today. Uh, Grant and I are both hugely, hugely uh, thankful for you being here and for sharing these stories, these accomplishments, and the things that you're doing now to help others get into the sport. So thank you for joining us, Don. We really appreciate it. Thank you, guys. It's, um, it's great to see what you're doing. Um, you know, what we're here doing here at Oak Cliff is replicable. People can copy us, no problem. I look for collaboration and using this uh, pause year to redefine our sport. Well, I think, um, you know, the word of the day is passion. Right. I mean, if you have passion about anything, um, you can do it. It will happen. Um, so that's and that's the only way to get something to really happen. So for people out there listening, um, you know, listen to the passion that Dawn has inserted into the whole program, into everything that she's done. And, you know, if you want to make something happen in, in your life, then, you know, attack it with the same amount of passion and, and vigor that Dawn has. So. She's, uh, she's incredible and one to be watched and followed. And with that, thank you, Don. Thank you, Grant. And to all of our listeners, happy sales.